This is the Smart Communications Smart Communications Smart Communications Podcast. Developing the voices voices developing the voices of determined nonprofits. Brought to you by Big Duck. This is the Smart Communications Podcast, and I'm Sarah Durham. In 2006, I had the great good fortune to hire a copywriter named Dan Gunderman. Dan, from the start, was just an incredible asset to the communications work we were doing at Big Duck because he had worked both inside nonprofits and in the agency world. And he, unlike many people, really is deeply passionate and focused on every single word. So Dan joined our team. And over the years, he not only very quickly became our senior copywriter, but he actually became our creative director and led our creative team for many, many years. At the time I'm recording this today, it is the spring of 2019, and Dan Gunderman is about to leave Big Duck to move to Scotland. So before he sails off, I wanted to get in a conversation with Dan about writing and pick his brain and share it with you a little bit so you can learn some of the things I've learned from him over the years. So welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. What a nice intro. (laughs) So, Dan, writing is one of those things we've talked about that everybody thinks they're a writer and everybody thinks they're a good writer. But what should the goal of writing really be? What is writing really all about? In the simplest sense, when you are writing on behalf of your organization, I think you really just want to make life as easy for your reader as possible. And there are a few things that you can do to make that true and to make that happen. The first is just to make things as short as possible. Being concise is really key. The sad truth is that people don't really read anymore. I think between social media and television and other kind of electronic media podcasts, podcasts, for (laughs) example, I think that there's just less patience for writing and for reading. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. You're going to find that person who reads every word that you write. And so, of course, you also want to be accurate. But really, the goal, I think, is to make things pretty concise and short. You also want to make things simple. And what I mean by that is really as much as you can, avoiding kind of industry jargon that especially your donors may not understand, keeping in mind that they are not as steeped in your world as you are. So remembering that you want to avoid words that they won't understand or really getting too into the weeds. One of the general rules that I often tell myself, and this is perhaps a bit glib, but just remember that people don't care about your topic as much as you do. It's really easy for us as writers to get lost in the content and to dive deep and go hard at the content and forget that people don't care as much as we do. (laughs) And so just remembering that, you know, you want to keep it as high level as you can while also telling them what you need to tell them. One of the things I often think about when I'm blogging or trying to write, I try to picture a specific person I'm writing to as if you're having a conversation so that instead of focusing on me and what I want to say. I'm trying to focus on you and what I want to tell you. And I find that can be a useful device. Yeah, that's a very good piece of advice. I think your starting point should always be your goals for the piece. And I think knowing who you're writing for is certainly part of that. And then also knowing what you want that person to either believe, think, or do with the piece of writing that you're doing. And just keeping that in mind. You've done a number of trainings for our clients and workshops on writing for the web and things like that for nonprofits. So what are some of the patterns or trends you've observed that nonprofit communicators struggle with when writing? Really keeping things short is one of the things that I think most of our clients have had the most trouble with, knowing when to stop. Enough is enough. Yeah, and and knowing when that is and where you're still achieving your goal for the piece, but also 
allowing your audience in. So yeah, keeping things concise. This is more true probably for writing for the web and say a press release than maybe other forms of writing, but also using the inverse pyramid, which is taught in journalism schools, where you sort of make sure that you're hitting the most important point first, your first paragraph. If it's the only thing that somebody reads, it should tell them enough and then fill in behind that with whatever background material there might be or supporting material. And again, that's especially true for, I think, press releases and writing for the web simply because people skim in those formats a lot more and you want to make sure that they're getting your most important point first. Exceptions to that, you know, if you're writing a speech, it's a little bit different just because there's cadence to think about. There's building to a fantastic conclusion or, you know, however you want the speech giver to end the speech, you're sort of building to a climax and that works differently for speech writing than it does for writing for the web where, for example, you don't want to sort of end with your most important point. You want to lead with your most important point. There's a great TED Talk by Nancy Duarte called something like The Secrets of Great Presentations. And when you talk about speech writing, it reminds me of that. She actually maps in this TED Talk the I Have a Dream speech, but also the Steve Jobs iPhone announcement speech. Mm -hmm. And she kind of maps the emotional highs and lows or the emotional cadence of both of those talks and shows how they actually structurally are the same, even though the content is extremely different. And really the emphasis in what she's mapping is the emotional journey. How is drama set in the speech? And how do we go from feeling concerned or worried to being, you know, elated and optimistic? And actually in both of those speeches, in many speeches, there is a kind of an up-down. Right. I wouldn't call myself a speech writing expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I do wonder if speech writing is a little bit more like making a mixtape where this is showing my age a little bit, but I know when I was in high school and college, you know, you would take kind of your favorite songs and put them all on mixtapes for people that you were either courting or <laughs> courting. Yeah, courting. Like I, I grew up in the 1930s <laughs> or even just friends, you know, there are kind of rules to making a mixtape where you start strong and then you go up a notch and then you take it down a notch. And, and mm -hmm. I feel like speeches kind of follow that pattern a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's true. When I'm writing a, a blog or something that's more long form or, or maybe a, a more formal speech, I often find it's a really helpful device to begin with an example or a story. Telling the story, for instance, of somebody who's benefited from one of your programs or you know, sharing something that feels personal that's happened to you invites the reader in and they all of a sudden experience, they're looking at the world through your eyes and they become your ally as opposed to you know, I notice in my own writing, I will get a little bit soapboxy or bombastic about what I think you should do or you should think about. And starting there is really off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> people don't really care what you think. They, they just want to learn something. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I think is under-discussed that I want us to unpack a little bit in this conversation is the difference between writing and editing. Because many people in communications teams do less writing. They might be working with freelancers or their colleagues who are doing the writing and a lot more editing. What do you see as the difference between writing and editing, first of all? First of all, I would say that for me, at least the, the biggest difference is thinking about writing as the originator of the content. So it's the person actually creating the words. And then editing is just making sure that it all comes together and works. I know that when I'm doing my own writing and editing, whether it's my own personal projects or even things that I do here at Big Duck, I kind of have two different processes where when I'm writing and creating, I'm really just like throwing things down on the page and I'm trying to be as free and as playful, frankly, as I possibly can be. And then I have a different writing session that I kind of reapproach the material and take a look at 
what I've done and the mess I've created and try to make some sense out of it. And that's two different parts of the brain. I think the writing part of the brain is very exploratory and maybe artistic and free and playful. And the editing part of the brain is very logical and critical. And you're kind of trying to make some sense out of this creative mess you've created. I have a good friend who writes romance novels, and she writes four or five books a year. Awesome. She publishes under the name Daisy Prescott. And one of the things she told me about her writing process that I thought was really interesting was she experiences it exactly what you described, two sides of the brain, one that is sort of creative and generative and one that is more critical and analytical. And she makes a conscious decision when she's working on a book. And I think this applies to any long form project or deep project you're doing as a writer She makes a decision if today is going to be a writing day or an editing day. She tries not to toggle back between those two kind of sides of the brain. And she's found that really leaving that space and using that space very deliberately to either write or edit has made her much more efficient and effective at both. Have you found that? That's been my experience, too. Working at Big Duck, it's been actually really fortunate in some ways because the account management team has really been great about working around my productive times. And so my writing times tend to be in the morning. That's when I'm kind of feeling the most free and feeling the most creative. And that's when I do most of the writing. I can do more editing in the afternoons. So I tend to revisit things in the afternoons. And there's also a nice piece of phrasing for this I read recently in a book called The Art of Writing Slowly by Louise DeSalvo. She talks about when you're writing, you're creating pages But as you edit, you're creating something else. You're creating a book or you're, you know, editing is much more structural. So let's talk a little bit more about editing because I think it is often the case that in a communications function in a nonprofit, you're editing something else that somebody else wrote. And it ain't just about proofreading, right? Right. What, What does an editor, a good editor really do? A great editor will take a look at what you've created and make sense out of it, especially for longer form pieces. If you're writing, say, a case statement for a capital campaign or you know, maybe an ebook or something that you're kind of creating that's a lot of content. An editor will be able to read the whole thing and then put it together in the order in which it makes the most sense and tells the best story. Sometimes your initial instinct as the writer is correct and you'll have that down pretty well. Most of the time you won't. <laughs> and a great editor can take what you've written and really highlight your intention and bring about what it is that you really are trying to say in the clearest way possible. So in some ways, it's like a good organizer is a great editor. Beyond that, they might make some like, you know, word suggestions and phrasing. They'll point out things that aren't clear. If you don't know what the original intent is because the writing isn't clear, you need to go back to the writer and say, I don't know how to revise this because it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. That's just something that, you know, a good editor will also look out for. And even if they don't rewrite it, they'll be able to take a look and say, this isn't clear, make it clear. Mm. I edit Big Duck's blog and I don't claim to be a great editor, but I do think that it is useful to not be the writer. Because if I'm editing a piece, for instance, you wrote, I'm bringing this kind of objective, you know, trying to cast myself in the role of the audience and think about how would this sound to me? And again, if it doesn't make sense to me as the editor, it won't make sense to the reader. But I also find that oftentimes the writer, because they've been so immersed in a topic, they've lost a little bit of perspective. And that one of the things that an editor can bring pretty easily without a lot of training is a kind of an observing eye, the ability to look at a piece that has been written by somebody else from a slightly higher altitude and to say, you know, you're spending an awful lot of time in this point, maybe it's overkill, or maybe you need to zoom back out and put some context around this part. I've said to you before, I find often in my own writing and other people's writings, the sequence is sometimes wrong. Sometimes Mm -hmm. a paragraph that's been written at the end actually should go at the beginning. 
or they're just kind of, you know, moving things around architecturally that can make a big difference. Yeah. There was one other thing that you said in there that was kind of hidden in what you just said about making something sound right. And I think actually reading things aloud for yourself is Mm -hmm. a great way to both write and edit. I think if you are able to say the words that you're writing, it's going to sound really good on the page and it's going to read really well. I know when I'm doing editing, I especially do that. When I'm less familiar with the cadence of the person writing than I am perhaps my own cadence, I will read their work aloud. And I know that if I trip over it as I'm reading aloud, there's probably something wrong in the phrasing. So that's a good tip. If you're editing something your executive director has written like a speech or maybe your direct mail shop has written an email that's going out, shut your office door, read it aloud. And where you trip up on it, maybe that's the place it needs a little bit of help. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's also important to note that proofreading and editing are not necessarily the same thing. In fact, somebody recently said to me something like sometimes the best proofreaders actually read sentences backwards. So they're totally not focused on the content. They're really just looking for misspelled words or double spaces or things like that. Do you think it's possible for somebody to be a good editor and a good proofreader? I do. I do think that it's slightly different skills. We have a couple of proofreaders that we work with here, and I would say that both of them are also good editors, which is a bonus. It's not usually what we're hiring them for, though. At that point, we are really looking for them to make sure there are no mistakes, and that's really what a proofreader is meant to do. But what I like about the proofreaders that we do use is that both have very strong opinions about grammar and will call out things that maybe are not grammatically correct. I like knowing what those things are. Sometimes it's been a conscious choice on my part to ignore grammar for the sake of clarity. I think sometimes, you know, if you hear those people who speak with perfect grammar, they sound ridiculous because it just sounds really stilted and weird. And I will sometimes forego grammar for the sake of clarity, which is something I would recommend, frankly, for most communicators. Although, you know, you'll also find that some people really don't like seeing grammar rules being broken and they might call you out for that. So just be aware that if you are making some conscious decisions, you might get one cranky grammarian, you know, to give you a hard time. Be unhappy with that. Yeah. Yeah. But I like knowing because there are still mistakes that I'll make grammatically. I'm a good but not a great grammarian. And I do find it useful to hear from editors or proofreaders or whoever if I've made a mistake and I still have time to correct it. Great. But sometimes I am very conscious about making a mistake on purpose. You know, if you're a busy nonprofit communicator, one of the challenges you have is too much to do, not enough time. There are probably degrees of attention you should pay to different things you are either writing or editing. So, for instance, you probably don't need to write, edit, and proofread a tweet or have multiple people editing or proofreading a relatively short and informal piece that you're producing. But as you get into something that's going to have high visibility or a long shelf life, if, for instance, you're a scientific organization publishing a scientific white paper or a significant thought piece in your industry, that's probably where you want to get into editing and proofreading, right? Do you have any guidelines for how an organization can begin to set up the workflows or to think about which pieces deserve extra attention? Or is it kind of as straightforward as shelf life? It could be as straightforward as shelf life. I mean, I do think that for more important pieces, especially if they're kind of extra, I know that so many of our clients and probably most nonprofit professionals are already stretched so thin. So if you're doing an extra project, like if suddenly you have a campaign that you're running or you're doing something that takes more than what your day-to-day work is and you're trying to do your day-to-day work on top of that, then it's definitely useful to 
frankly, hire a freelancer. And there are a lot of great resources out there for finding freelancers. And you know, just a Google search will result in some. But the best way to find a freelancer is to ask people you know, like who they've used. If you've got the resources, bring in somebody from the outside who can help you not just to make your life easier, but also because they might bring some expertise to the table. Most of our clients are communications professionals, not writers. And there is a difference. So bringing in a freelancer can just help with some of that is the first thing. Now, what projects you do that for is going to vary from organization to organization. I do agree with you that anything that's kind of high stakes or otherwise is going to be out there a lot longer or is more important. It's going to have higher visibility or things like that. Even like a really prominent speech that maybe the executive director or president of the organization is giving might deserve a little bit more massaging on the writing side. Certainly like a capital campaign case statement, I would recommend you get professionals to do that work. And maybe you are that professional, but making sure that there is a certain level of skill coming to the writing who can tell the story properly. Because it gives you real credibility. If all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, nothing's misspelled, grammar's correct, then your readers can't poke holes in it on that level. So last thing I want to ask you about are style guidelines, because you and many other writers I've talked to are passionate about following a particular style, Chicago Manual of Style, New York Times style. What are those and what should somebody who's not a trained writer know about them? Yeah, style guides are super important. And we actually, generally speaking, use the AP style book at Big Duck. And I chose that one, frankly, because it's the easiest to use. I find Chicago utterly confounding. I can never find what I need in there. I do know that like fiction publishers use Chicago. It's a little bit more rigorous. There are just a lot more guidelines in Chicago. Chicago also tends to be ahead of the curve. I think it was before I worked at Big Duck, maybe 13, 14 years ago, that Chicago made the change that said that using their they to refer to a singular antecedent was correct. And that has everything to do with gender and gender norms today and saying that you know, the teacher writes on the board, they scribble poorly. That became correct in Chicago first. Whereas AP up until even just a few years ago was still saying you have to say he or she, which just isn't gender inclusive. So Chicago tends to be up ahead of the curve and AP tends to follow. Let's talk a little bit more about what are in these books. Yeah, You sit with these books on your desk and you pick them up and look up things in them. What are you looking up? Why do I need one of these on my desk? I use it to decide whether a word might need a hyphen or if it's one word. Like website, for Like instance. website. For years, it was two words, capital W. Now it's usually one word, all lowercase. Nonprofit is sometimes hyphenated and sometimes not. We use it usually as one word with no hyphen. And most of those things you can find in a style guide and you can decide whether or not you agree with them, but a style guide can help you sort of make those decisions. There's also punctuation. We ignore the AP style book rules on serial commas because we believe in the serial comma here at Big Duck, but AP does not. So that's one place where I wholeheartedly disagree with the AP style book. Really, it's a lot of word choices. Style books do keep up on language trends and can help you just keep up with that. Like That's one of the things I really admire, frankly, about Chicago, even though I find it confounding. I feel like they are usually way ahead of everybody else in terms of what's acceptable language to use for what topics. And if you're trying to get your team aligned, let's say you work at a larger organization and you've got people across multiple departments who are writing and producing content on behalf of the organization, putting things up on the website, et cetera, having a standard as an organization, we subscribe to the AP style guide. 
gives you something that all those different writers can point to and hopefully be a bit more consistent in the practices of their writing. That's right. And we've also had a handful of clients who have created their own supplemental guides. We've noticed this is especially significant in the social justice space, for example, when there are certain terms or phrases that are sort of in and out of style and these organizations kind of keep up on that and keep track of that. We had an interesting conversation with one of our clients about whether or not to capitalize the word black when it refers to black people. It's actually a political choice to capitalize black. And that was a change they were making. And that was in their personal style guide for the organization. I don't know what the rules are in AP in Chicago on that right now, but it wouldn't surprise me if they don't agree. I know when I was going through college, black and white were lowercase. That's less true now. Okay, so any parting tips on writing, editing, or proofreading for the nonprofit communicator? Keep it short. Keep it short. Okay. Dan Gunderman, (laughs) thank you very much. Thank you. This is the Smart Communications Podcast, developing the voices of determined nonprofits. Brought to you by Big Duck. Big Duck is an agency that puts smart communications in the hands of nonprofits. We help our nonprofit clients develop strong brands, strong campaigns, and strong teams that advance their missions and achieve their goals. Connect with us at bigduckNYC.com.